Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, the exact imprint of God's very being. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This is the word of the Lord. As is true with many of the books of the Bible, we do not know the author of Hebrews. Scholars have debated when it was written. Some believe it could have been written as early as 60 of that first century. Others believe as late as 95. That's about as close as they can get. We can tell the author is well-educated, writes a higher level of Greek than some. He's very well versed in the Tanakh, the scriptures of the Jewish people, the translation into Greek, the Septuagint. Half of this work we call Hebrews, direct quotations from the Septuagint. Other than that, we know nothing except this is a second-generation believer in Christ writing to other second-generation believers in Christ. Some believe he was writing to the church in Rome, as Paul had written to the church in Rome in the year 60. The very beginning of his sermon catches our attention today. It begins, long ago God spoke. In England, the most famous rabbi is named Jonathan Sachs. He has so distinguished himself that Queen Elizabeth II has elevated him to the House of Lords. He is Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs today. He has a new book out about the relationship of science and religion. He is deeply concerned about how few Jews and how few Christians or in faithful attendance at synagogues and churches. Because he believes religion has such a vitally important part to play in the way we treat each other, that our faith has everything to do with our ethics. He says that it's unfortunate that science and religion have been pitted against each other because they are really trying to answer two different questions. Science is trying to ask, answer the question, how? And religion is trying to answer the question, why? He uses an example of football. He says you can buy a rule book about football, and it will tell you that there is a line of scrimmage, that neither team can move before the ball moves, that if either team does move before the ball moves, five-yard penalty. If one player holds the other, that's a 10-yard penalty. If one commits a personal foul on the other, that's 15 yards. That a field goal counts three points, a touchdown six, a point after if kicked counts one, a point after if run or passed into the end zone, two. But he said, even if you've read that book, you don't understand why people play and why so many go to the games and so many millions of others watch on television. Gail has been amazed 
that whenever I happen to see someone who went to high school with me, we talk about football, and we remember every game. All these years later, we say, you remember that night against Henderson? We were down on their 37-yard line. It was third and 13. We really needed that first down. Our kicker couldn't kick a field goal that far, and the coach sent in the play, and Bobby called it, and we remember. Because the thing we remember most about the game, not the rule book, but that coach, that coach, I had one of those. He was old enough to be my grandfather. What a great fellow he was. He was tough. He wanted us to be tough. But he was kind. He was kind to women. Uh, I never saw a woman walk into a room where he was that he didn't stand. In his late 70s, the last time I saw him before I did his funeral, his wife walked into the room. They'd been married 50 years. When she walked in, he stood up. He didn't sit till she sat. He was amazing. He opened doors. He held chairs. The worst thing I ever heard him say was, Hell's bells! When he really got upset, that was as bad as it got. Hell's bells! But one day when I'd not done well in practice, he called me over the side, sit down by me. We were winning. We were in the state playoffs. There were several hundred people out there watching us work out. I felt lower than a snake. I started finally after practice walking toward the gym. And I remember forever he walked along beside me and said, Hold up your head. You're my man. You're my man. I just have to fuss at you a little every once in a while. You'll be ready Friday night. That's what we remember, you see. Why did we play? Because of all those guys, because of that coach. That's why you play. So the rabbi says, we have a rule book that the scientists are still writing. They're still trying desperately to find out all of these hows about the universe. But in our houses of worship, we talk about the why. And the rabbi believes that God chose to reveal himself to the Jewish people. And we Christians believe he has chosen to continue that revelation as well. Number two. Long ago, God spoke to us through the prophets. Dr. Jacob Fitzner, Dr. Victor Fitzner, Dr. Fred Craddock, these who've written great commentary on this book say, this author doesn't literally mean that part of the Hebrew scriptures that's called prophets. He's really meaning the whole, all 39 scrolls. He means all 39 scrolls because in his quoting, he quotes from many different parts of that, that book, that compilation of those scrolls. But he's talking about the people Israel. He spoke through the people Israel. A new book out called Selected Letters of Anthony Hecht. If you're a liberal arts major, you may know that name. Anthony Hecht was poet laureate of the Library of Congress for a number of years. He was born in New York City, 1923, 
to German Jewish parents. They had seen how horrible conditions were in Germany at the end of World War I. Germany had been absolutely defeated, and the rest of Western Europe was determined to make them pay the price. So rampant inflation in the country. One day, a loaf of bread was a Deutsche Mark. The next day, a loaf of bread was zwei Deutsche Mark. And the next day, vier Deutsche Mark. Inflation was unbelievable. There was no way to keep up. Anthony Heck's parents came to America. In 1923, he was born. He went to college there in New York, Bard College. He told his parents he was going to be a poet. They were not happy. Poets didn't make very much money. Their lives not really solidly financed, but he seemed determined. Didn't really matter much because the day he was graduated from college at 21, he was drafted into World War II. He was sent to join Patton's Third Army, the army my father was in, rushing toward Bastogne to try to rescue the 101st Airborne that fateful, bitterly cold Christmas of 1944. Some of the most severe fighting that Anthony Hecht saw and my father saw was called the Battle of the Ruhr Pocket, which effectively finally stopped the Battle of the Bulge. From that point, Anthony Hecht's forces that he was attached to and those my father was attached to separated. I don't mean they knew each other. I'm not implying that. They simply were in that same big third army of George Patton. My dad's unit ended up at Birch's Garden on the day the Germans surrendered. Anthony Heck's unit had gone to Flossenburg. Flossenburg, a camp, one of those camps where Gail and I were, one of those we went to see. Thousands of Jews died there. Dr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hanged there. Anthony Hecht realized when he saw these emaciated bodies, those mass graves, when he smelled the ashes from the crematoria, these were cousins. These were aunts and uncles. These were his people. When the war was over, he came back to New York, but he said he would wake up in the middle of the night screaming. Twelve years after the war was over, he had a nervous breakdown, ended up in a state hospital for three months. But then his life began to turn. He began to write poetry about what he had seen and heard, what he had experienced. One of them was called My Light, My Light. In this one, a Polish soldier is told to bury two Jews alive. With the Nazis standing right over him, he buries them alive. And then they shoot him in the head. But before he is dead, lying there over the grave of these two Jews, a fine, fine dust settles into his eyelashes from the crematories just a couple of miles away. If you don't take the Jewish faith community seriously, you're missing something important. They knew this God 2,000 years before Jesus came. And what they've learned about him the last 2,000 years is equally important.
need to hear what they've learned about our God. Number three, now he has revealed himself by a son, by Jesus of Nazareth, child of Mary, son of God. At the end of the year, magazines, newspapers have lists. The Tulsa World had a big listing this week. I was reading 10 best new restaurants, 10 best Mexican food restaurants, 10 best barbecue restaurants, 10 best Asian American restaurants, 10 best movies, 10 worst movies, you know. But all these magazines and newspapers also included lists of famous people who died this year. And I've been reading some of those obituaries. One, Dave Brubeck. Three weeks ago, Dave Brubeck died one day before he would have been 92. His wife survived him. They lived together 70 years had six kids. He was born out in California. His father was a cattle rancher, his mother a piano teacher. Dave tried hard to play piano, and his mother thought he played really well until one day she discovered he couldn't read music. He just played well. He had a real sense of harmony, a real sense of composition of how music could move in different unusual directions. But he wanted to support his father, the cattleman, so he started to college to be a veterinarian. And one day a professor in the science building said, Dave Brubeck, get out of my class. Get out of my class. You're wasting my time. You're wasting your time. Your heart is in the conservatory. Go over to the conservatory. And he went to be a music major. They discovered he couldn't read music but he could play music, and he could compose music. He was drafted into World War II to General George Patton's Third Army. He didn't know Anthony Hecht, and he didn't know my father, and he didn't know Charlie Bonner and some others who were in that Third Army, but that's where he was sent. And he said it changed his life. It changed his life. When he got back, he formed a quartet. They played jazz. But he had this creative desire. And he started studying the four Gospels. He read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, and John. And he composed an oratorio called The Light in the Wilderness. The Light in the Wilderness with these great voices of the disciples, even Judas screaming out in this huge baritone voice, repent, repent, be sorry, and turn your life. The Roman Catholics really saw this talent in Dave Brubeck, his ability to compose. They were willing to take a chance, and they commissioned one work after another. But the more Dave read and the more he composed, the more convinced he was that all these stories were true. That God Almighty had somehow revealed himself in this flesh and blood person, Jesus of Nazareth. When he was 60 years old, he asked a Catholic priest if he would baptize him. 
He said, will you go to class? He said he would. And so he went to confirmation class when he was 60, and he professed his faith and was baptized, and he was a faithful worshiper for the next 32 years. The last thing he composed for the Catholics was called, Oh, Hope! Exclamation point. Oh, hope in the Lord. For finally it all belongs to him. To that one who sent his son the exact imprint of the very essence, and this word essence comes from the Latin verb esse, meaning to be, the very being, the very stuff of God, we believe was in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Number four. This author of Hebrews goes to great lengths, we have 13 chapters, to show Jesus as a great prophet in that long tradition. He was a teacher, often railing against those in authority of his time. He was a priest. Those two groups usually didn't get along well together. The priests were having to sort of support the king and all of the government to keep things going in Jerusalem. The prophets were usually in the king's face, shaking a bony finger there. But this author says Jesus was a priest. But the other priest offered sacrifice day after day after day. And he offered one, just one, once and for all, no deed ever again for that kind of sacrifice. He was the high priest, but he was also king, prophet, priest, and king, raised to sit at the right hand of the Almighty who had sent him, being of the same substance, the same esse, the same being as God himself. But what we see in Christ Jesus, we can believe is true about God. And he shall reign forever and ever, our choir sang. And many of us tried to join in on Christmas Eve night, just after midnight. And he shall reign forever and ever. Alleluia, alleluia, amen. Elizabeth Sherrill, her husband John, almost 90 years old. A daughter who lives in Massachusetts convinced them that they needed to sell their house, where they'd lived for more than 50 years in New York City and moved closer to her and her family in Massachusetts. They sold their house. They had to get rid of most everything to move into an apartment not so far from their daughter. Elizabeth writes, it was the right thing to do. She was right. We agreed. She was right. But here we were getting close to Christmas. And we didn't have our stuff. We didn't have a fireplace. We didn't have a mantle where you could put stockings. We didn't have our special place where we always put our creche that we had saved, Mary and Joseph and the baby, shepherds, wise men, lambs, cows. We didn't have it. I was feeling awfully sorry for myself until I remembered another Christmas more than 50 years ago. Guidepost magazine had sent John and me to Uganda for a whole year to write devotional materials in that great continent of Africa. 
our three children, elementary age. We thought, what an experience for them to live in Uganda for a whole year, and then we'll come back to New York City. Things were going pretty well. We lived in a small town. We had a man who had been hired to keep the jungle from overtaking us while we were there. I tell you, she said it took him a long day, almost every day, just to hack away at those vines with a machete to keep the jungle from overtaking our house. Now, every day when he worked, this precious little boy of his called Tomu, they spoke no English. We spoke nothing but English. It was getting close to Christmas. Our children were whining. We lived on the equator. No snow, no cold weather, no fir trees. One day she said, I went into Kampala. I was shopping for Christmas. There was very little to buy of the kind of Christmas shopping we knew in New York. I was thinking of my three children and suddenly remembered little Tomu, seven years old. I'd noticed that little Tomu didn't seem to have seen many automobiles in his life out there in that little village where we lived. That one of the most frequent visitors to the village was the postman. He drove a little green Volkswagen Beetle. He came to our house more than anybody else's in the village because we had friends in America who wrote to us. And I'd see this little boy <clears throat> looking at that car. He'd get closer and closer, and if he thought no one was looking, he'd touch it. In Kampala that day, she said, in the meager toy department they had, I saw a green Volkswagen Beetle eight inches long. I bought it. I took it home. Our three children helped me wrap it for him. Christmas Eve night, he and his father were about to go home, and we asked them to come in for a moment. We led them to the little tree we had decorated, and our son handed Tomu the wrapped gift. His little face beamed, but he handed it back. My son offered again and tried to point. Present, you. You, present. He didn't get it. So she said our son tore a little bit of the paper off one end, removed the bow, handed it back to him. He smiled and handed it back. So he took all the paper off, just the box there, handed it to him. He smiled and handed it back. So our daughter opened the box, took out the little green Volkswagen Beetle, and handed it once more. He took it into his hands, and for 50 years, I remembered his face. It was radiant. He finally had realized a gift was being offered, and all he had to do was hold out his hand. Elizabeth said, I felt ashamed because I need to realize in my apartment in Massachusetts I'm loved by the one who created the whole universe if I'll just hold out my hands and receive his gift. <laughs>